It's great to be with you this morning. As we see the Commonwealth Games uh, starting again, and, it, and you hear the stories about what has motivated the athletes to achieve what they've done, it's brought back to me again the importance of the question of motivation. What is it that gets us going, lets us doing what we do? For example, what's motivated you or what motivates you in your chosen role or profession? Uh, the work that you do. Perhaps it was a, a desire to prove yourself to yourself or to others. Perhaps uh, it was a desire to follow the path that your parents wanted you to go on. Uh, it could have been a, a desire for a certain standard of living and choice and therefore you needed a certain level of income to kind of satisfy that. Perhaps you felt a calling to serve others or, or make life better for other people and uh, and that was your motivation. Perhaps Perhaps you found one thing you were good at uh, and you wanted to spend your life doing that. Or or perhaps your motivation was to provide a secure family context for children to grow up and and so serving primarily in the home was the calling that you uh, chose and the motivation that you had. I, I think the question of motivation says something though about our hearts. If I had to make a brief comment on the different types of motivation, I think I'd say that motivation that it's about achieving an external goal, that is other people's approval or certain material possessions, uh, can be very powerful motivations, but they also be quite risky. And my experience of talking to others who uh, suggests that if our motivation is to get something or to achieve something, then two unfortunate results can occur. Either, if we do achieve it, the big house, the promotion, the recognition, we can become very proud because we think, well, I've done this. Or if we don't achieve it for whatever reason, we can become very bitter and say, I didn't deserve this. I I suspect the motivation that is more rooted in ourselves And our own calling has the potential to be longer lasting. But that's all a way of getting us thinking this morning about what is our motivation for following Jesus? What is our reason for walking the Christian life if that is what we're doing today? Uh, It's a question that's actually relevant for all of us. If you're following Jesus already, it's good to reflect on why you're doing it. But if you're just looking here this morning, you're you're here in church and you're considering following Jesus Christ, it it really opens up the question, what good reason is there to start to follow Jesus Christ? What what good reason is there for putting him at the centre of your life? It seems to me there's a, a number of possible different answers to that question. A number of possible different motivations for following Jesus Christ. One is a sense of duty. So just a sense that it's the right thing to do, the moral thing to do. Uh, Another is a sense of fear, (laughs) a kind of worry about what will happen if you don't. Uh, That might tie in with a view of God who is capricious and angry and who you really quite need to keep on your side. Another form of motivation perhaps linked to this is uh, a desire that we want something from God. So we follow Jesus because we think that it's the best way to get blessings from God in terms of health or wealth. We're in it, if you like, for what we can get out of it. Another form of uh, motivation could be that we just kind of want to live out our ethnic identity. Following Jesus is just part of what it means to be English. And that's why we want to do it. A sense of duty, therefore. A sense of fear. A sense of gain. 
a sense of identity. Just four possible reasons to follow Jesus Christ. I have to say, I don't find any of them given much airtime in the pages of the New Testament, which is our source document for looking at what it means to follow Jesus. And I'm going to argue today that in the pages of the New Testament, there is one overriding form of motivation above all others. And that is this. The reason to follow Jesus Christ is an understanding of what he's already done for us. The reason to follow Jesus Christ is an understanding of what he's already done for us. Now, to explore that, I'm going to open up the passage that Rosie uh, read to us from Luke chapter 7, verses 36 uh, to 50. As Linda said earlier, we're starting a summer teaching series looking at some passages in Luke's gospel that we didn't have time to explore when we were working through Luke, if you remember, from December through to Easter. Uh, Given the working title for that series was kind of the bits of Luke that weren't in Mark, Annabelle thoughtfully suggested that this summer series could be called the bits of Luke that weren't the bits of Luke that weren't in Mark. But it didn't go on the term card. Uh, so um, so um, anyway, just a reminder what we're doing. Uh, Luke was writing his gospel in around the 60s AD, about 30 years after the events took place. He was not an eyewitness, but he was using eyewitness evidence that he had actually spoken to as he wrote his gospel. And we saw he had an historian's eye for detail. But one of the things, I don't, think, I don't know if you remember this, one of the things I think we noticed as we worked through Luke's Gospel was just simply the kind of number of ways in which he used contrast between characters to make his point. Do you remember that? Uh, in, in other words, in, in many of his stories, he sets up kind of two characters against each other, in contrast to each other, and it's kind of in that point of tension that the real point is to be found. If you think about it, there was the rich young man and Lazarus, There was the Pharisee and the tax collectors. There was the older son and the younger son. You remember that? The the rich ruler and the children. It was a striking feature of Luke's gospel. And today, in today's passage, we see that contrast again between Simon the Pharisee and the unnamed sinful woman. It's brought out not only by Luke, but it's explicitly pointed out by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the contrast between these two characters, between Simon and the unnamed sinful woman. We're going to look at the contrast in terms of their behaviour, then at the contrast in terms of their hearts, and then at the contrast in terms of their response to Jesus. And as we go through that, I think we're going to see more and more about what it means for us to have good reasons to follow Jesus Christ. That okay? Uh, so please open up your Bibles with me to page 1036. It's uh, Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. There's a batting order on a salmon bit of paper that shows you where we're going. That should be broadly consistent with what I've just mentioned. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. First of all, different behaviour. Secondly, different hearts. Thirdly, different responses. Let's look, therefore, at the different behaviour of these two people, Simon and the woman, and let's, therefore, imagine the scene. Now, the action is taking place in Galilee, which is a rural area in the north of Israel, around the lake of the same name. Uh, Most likely, we're in Capernaum, which was the centre, it was a busy fishing town where Jesus was based for the three years of his public ministry. 
And now we're still early on in the first year of Jesus' ministry. Having relocated from out-of-the-way Nazareth, Jesus has achieved some prominence in Capernaum and around through some healings and some bold teaching. He's gathered a a group of uh, small disciples. Sorry, a small group of disciples, not a group of small disciples. He's gathered a... uh, I wouldn't have got a place. Uh, He's he's gathered a group of uh, disciples around him who had left previous jobs uh, to follow him. There are, however... Still big questions about who Jesus is at this stage in the gospel. Uh, And these questions, who is this guy, would have been most taxing to those who thought they knew most about the ways of God. Yeah? And the Pharisees fit that bracket fairly and squarely. Uh, They were not priests in the formal sense of the word, but they were something like the kind of self-appointed compliance officers of the Jewish faith. Men of much learning and a firm moral bent. They placed rigid compliance with the religious law of Moses and the stuff that had been written and added to it as their chief calling. You could kind of summarize it as the kind of spot it and stop it brigade. And these Pharisees were therefore worried about Jesus. They were worried about where his teaching was lead. They were worried about how he was becoming popular. And, and that's the background to Simon the Pharisee inviting Jesus to dinner. I don't think he invited Jesus dinner to dinner because he just had a spare place and was feeling generous. He invited Jesus to dinner to check him out. To find out who he was. To test him. Now, now inviting somebody to dinner was a perfectly normal thing to do. It was a mark of honour to receive someone at your table. Meals would often have been held outside in that very warm climate often in front of the house, and would have been semi-public events because people would have seen who you had at your table and who you were on good terms with. But while Simon offers the invitation to Jesus, he does not follow up with welcoming behaviour. As Jesus reminds Simon uh, in verses 44 to 46, he omits the usual courtesies of the host. The water to wash the feet, essential in mucky Capernaum where hunter wellies had yet to be invented. The welcoming kiss, normal in ancient Near Eastern cultures today. The perfumed oil to cover the less pleasant odours. All of them were just part of a normal actions of a host. And Simon did none of them. So his behaviour was all form, the big invitation, but no substance. But Luke records Jesus contrasting Simon's behaviour with that of the woman in verses 4 to 46. Who is this woman? Well, Luke tells us in verse 37 that she had lived a sinful life in that town. Two things from that statement. First of all, that means she was a prostitute. That's what a sinful life was code for. She made her living sleeping with other men, Romans and Jews. And in an ethnically, sorry, ethically conservative Jewish context that Capernaum was, that made her dirty and despised. Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman made prostitution appear glamorous. It wasn't then and it isn't now. This woman was trapped in isolation and exclusion. The second thing we know is that she was a known prostitute. Luke tells us very specifically she'd lived a sinful life in that town. 
She'd not gone to Sephra, some ten miles away, the nearest Roman city to ply her trade. She'd done it in Capernaum itself, a town of a couple of thousand. And so she would have been known, indeed notorious, for her work. Everyone sitting at that table, everyone watching on, would have known who she was. And so would Jesus. But what of her behaviour? Well, obviously, she's not part of the invited crowd, but as I say, with the meal being held in public and with Jesus reclining at the table with his feet behind him, it was not too hard for the woman to get to her feet, to his feet. And we read in verses 44 to 46 that she wets Jesus' feet with her tears, she kisses them, she pours perfume on them. It's an act of service because feet were not pleasant. It's an act of generosity because perfume was expensive. And it's an act of intimacy, being close to Jesus. So this is contrast, therefore, in different behaviour. Simon, although he's given the invitation, his behaviour is actually stingy and distant, remote. The woman is generous and intimate. But it's not only their behaviour that's being contrasted in this passage. Jesus doesn't just look at their behaviour, he looks below their behaviour to their hearts. He sees how different they are there. And the reason why we do that is because we know he looks at their hearts because he tells Simon the story that gets him examining his own heart. The story is there in verses 40 to 43. It's about two people who owe debts, one big and one small. The money lender lets them off both their debts and then Jesus poses the question in verse 42, which one will love them more? It's a strange question because loving money lenders was not usual practice in that culture. It's a bit like loving Wonga. But Jesus asked Simon because he wants him to see the link between behaviour, the love bit, and the forgiveness, what's gone on in the heart. Yeah? He says they will behave differently because of something that's gone on here. Simon goes on to give the only answer he can, namely that the person who has been forgiven more loves more. And that is when Jesus really nails the point home about Simon's behaviour and finishes in verse 47, he who has been forgiven little loves little. The point he's making is this. Simon does not love because in his heart he does not feel forgiven. Simon does not love because in his heart he does not feel forgiven. His heart is full of pride. It's full of a sense of what qualifies him. It's full of his social standing, his knowledge. It is cold, it is distant, and above all it's unforgiven. You see, the real problem with Simon is not that he's rude, it's that he's proud. And because he has proud, he has no appreciation of the forgiveness which he needs and which Jesus alone can offer. He doesn't see that he has any debts that need paying, and certainly none that this upstart preacher from Nazareth can pay for him. And so while formerly Jesus has been invited in by Simon, spiritually he's miles away. What a different heart the woman has. You see, she has nothing that qualifies her. 
Her life is a mess. Her social standing is at rock bottom. But she's heard a rumour. She's heard a rumour that Jesus has something that she knows she needs. She heard, perhaps even from a client, of how Jesus had stood by the bed of a paralysed man and told him his sins were forgiven. And so she thought that Jesus could forgive her too. And so her heart is broken, repentant and humble. And when she found that Jesus did not kick his feet and shoo her away, but rather let her, a prostitute, wash and kiss his feet, she must have known in her heart that this man was forgiving her. And so she poured the perfume over his feet as a sign of love for him. You see, that's what's going on when Jesus says in verse 47, her sins have been forgiven. The word for is a bad translation here. It should be hence. Her sins have been forgiven. Hence, she loved much. Jesus sees very two very different people in front of him. You see, their behavior, that's not the real issue. He's not getting stressed because Simon hasn't given him any water. The issue is their hearts. You see, one Simon, he doesn't feel he needs to receive anything from Jesus. The other, the woman, she knows that she really needs to receive what he alone can give. How does this story end? It's really interesting, I think. You see, the woman is, the, Jesus confirms to the woman what she has already felt, namely that her sins are forgiven. And she goes on her way, uh, we must imagine, to a new way of living, knowing that she's kind of put back together again, or at least beginning to be put back together again, put back together in her relationship with God and perhaps even with the rest of other people. But as for Simon, well, at the end of the story, there's a big question mark over Simon. Because he's entered this story entirely confident of his standing before God. But he leaves it with a big question mark. He does not receive assurance that his sins are forgiven. And Luke leaves us wondering. And in so doing, I think Luke is asking us to ask a question of ourselves, which is, which response are we going to make to Jesus? Or to put another way, who are we more like? Are we like Simon the Pharisee or the sinful woman? If we're honest, I suspect many of us here today feel quite like Simon. We've done well in a number of ways. We certainly have led morally tidy lives, at least as far as others can see. So we're happy to listen to Jesus as a figure of history, a wise teacher. But we don't need anything from him. (laughs) So yes, our relationship with him, such as it is, is one we based, we hope, on mutual respect. We respect his wisdom and he respects our choices. Isn't that good enough? Uh, The message from this story is that if we follow Simon down this path, we've missed the point about ourselves and especially about Jesus. You see, Jesus didn't come into this world to be an interesting dinner party guest. He came into this world to do something that nobody else could do. The other guests guests grasped this as they said, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus came to forgive all the ways in which you and I have done what we want 
rather than what God wants. All the ways in which we have let other things be the focus of our ultimate love in a way that only God deserves. Yes, some of us may have led morally tidy lives, but before the God who knows every thought, every word and every deed, I don't think you can stand tall. I know I can't. My sin might not be as public as the prostitutes was that day, but it's every bit as real. If we pretend we don't need the very thing that Jesus came to give, we will end up as lost as Simon was. Respected, admired, wealthy perhaps, and lost. But there's another way. We can come to Jesus instead like the sinful woman came. Aware of what we've done wrong, but believing that Jesus will not kick his feet and turn us away. Trusting that he will forgive us. And here we have a massive advantage over the sinful woman. You see, she simply heard that Jesus could forgive her. It was a rumour, a word on the street. That's not so for us. We've received evidence that God can forgive us. Because a few years after Jesus said these words in Galilee, he hung on a cross outside the walls of Jerusalem. Not as an accident, but as part of God's plan. For in himself, he was burying, carrying, absorbing the sins of all the world, all the ways in which humanity and you and I have fallen short of God. See, the cross is the proof that we will never be turned away. It is the evidence that we can be forgiven in Jesus' name. Let's go back to our opening question. What's our motivation to follow Jesus? I hope not a sense of duty. That will just dry up. Not a sense of fear. That will mean we always keep our distance. Not a sense of gain. Jesus has not promised us health and wealth in this life. Not a sense of ethnic identity. Jesus is really not very worried where we were born. The motivation to follow Jesus, I hope, is what motivated that woman in Capernaum. It's knowing that we're forgiven. This is how the great Anglican Archbishop of Liverpool, J.C. Ryle, wrote concerning this woman. He said, her many tears, her deep affection, her public reverence, her action in anointing his feet were all traceable to one cause. She had been much forgiven and so she loved much. Her love was the effect of her forgiveness, not the cause. The consequence of her forgiveness, not the condition. The result of her forgiveness, not the reason. The fruit of her forgiveness, not the root. Would the Pharisee know why this woman showed so much love? It was because she felt much forgiven. Would he know why he himself has shown his guest such little love? It was because he felt under no obligation, had no consciousness of having received forgiveness, had no sense of a debt to Christ. My brothers and sisters, can I encourage you this morning to consider afresh the debt that we have to Christ? Will you join me 
and kneel at the feet of Jesus, repenting of your sin, known to him alone, and just know his forgiving love that never turns away. My experience, you see, is it can be very easy to forget that motivation. We can kind of somehow know that we were forgiven once, but then drift into just following Jesus out of fear or duty or gain, or simply because kind of we call ourselves Christians and go to church. But we've lost that personal sense of our debt to Christ, just how much we've been given by him. It may be this morning you're here in church and and you've never asked Jesus to forgive your sins. Perhaps you didn't know before you walked in this morning you had any sins to forgive. Can I ask you to consider afresh the one thing that Jesus alone offers, which is your sins taken on the cross? You see, Jesus didn't come to lecture you or spoil your fun, but he did come to die for you, that you might know the forgiveness and the never-ending love of God. And that I want to suggest to you this morning, if you're not following Jesus, is the most wonderful motivation for doing so. I'm going to give you one verse to finish with. It comes from St. Paul. I told you that this motivation stretches across the whole of the New Testament. It comes from St. Paul, who had a brain the size of Asia Minor, but who distilled his faith to this one sentence in Galatians 2.20. He said this, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me, and gave himself for me. I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me, and gave himself for me. If you're not following Jesus today, think about what he loves you, and how he gave himself for you. If you are following Jesus today, come back again afresh, and just know your debt to him. And let let that flood and fire your life for him.